Are miracles real? And did Jesus really rise from the grave? So in this sermon, we are going to be building off of several things we have already discussed in this series. And a few things we're going to be building from is uh, we've heard a strong case that a theistic God exists. So we are going to assume the existence of a theistic God that is personal and that is interactive in this morning's sermon. We have also heard amazing evidence about the Bible and how it is historically reliable. And so we are going to assume this morning that the Bible that we have is uh, exactly what we had from the originals. And we've also heard how Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah repeatedly in word and action in the biblical account of his life and story. So we are going to assume he really did say all these th- those things that the Bible said. Also, super briefly, in order to make sense of a little uh, few things coming down the road, we need to review quickly what we have learned about God in this series. So first, uh, if you remember, we talked about the cosmological argument or proof of God from the cosmos. And it tells us that God is infinite. It tells us that God created time, space, and matter. And so he must be outside of things. He's without bounds. He is supremely powerful. We also talked about the teleological argument or proof of God from the purpose we see in the cosmos. It tells us that God is supremely intelligent. We know this because the universe is designed with such complexity, with such precision, especially when it comes to life, to what it takes, what it requires for life to exist, for you to exist. We also learned about the moral argument or proof of God from the existence of of morality. It tells us that God defines good. This tells us that God is absolutely morally pure. He is the unchangeable standard of morality by which all of our actions are measured. So then, how does this infinite, this supremely powerful, this precise, this pure God How does he communicate with his creation? I mean, I guess he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. But if he did, how would he do it? So assuming he wants to, assuming he wants to communicate with us, here's a question that I have had since my youth. Why doesn't God just split the sky to show himself without doubt in some kind of amazing show of power That would just prove his existence immediately. Or why doesn't he come face to face with everybody? Surely he could do that. A face to face interaction universally, instantly. Then people would have no excuse. We would have the evidence to prove God, to believe in God. There would be no excuse. But then, if I think about it, that's probably the problem right there. God also designed us with a free will. And if he did those things, if he split the sky, if he came face to face with everybody in the world, then where would our free will be? We would have no choice but to follow God, but to love God. Well, at least follow him. I guess the love might still be an option, but that's 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 beside the point. Even Jesus taught this way. 
not wanting to force people to follow him, he often taught in parables. He often said things like, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Or, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus didn't want to force anyone to follow him, but he spoke the truth, and then he let his sheep follow. God wants it to be our choice to follow him, And not because God shocked us by some great, powerful sighting, but because it was our desire, our will. So if God were to communicate with us, it would probably be quite subtle. Maybe something like written language, spoken word. And the reason why these are good ways for God to communicate to us is because spoken word, written language, is precise. It is easily passed from person to person to person. It is easily passed from generation to generation. But then there's another problem. How do we know what spoken word? How do we know what message? How do we know what prophet? There are plenty of prophets, plenty of people who claim to be speaking for God. Who do we follow? Jesus? Muhammad? Joseph Smith? Here is one possible way a seal, a king's seal. Are you familiar with the king's seal? A long time ago, back in the day of written word, you know, like 30 years ago when there was no internet, when paper, paper had to be sent long distance to communicate uh, important stuff, there was this thing called a king's seal. And maybe more traditionally, something like this, it was used a bit further down the road than 30 years ago. But this right here is an example of what a king's seal looks like. This is an imprint from the seal of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of the last kings of Judah. This is from 700 BC. And this is what the Bible says about King Hezekiah, just to give you context of what you're looking at here. King, uh, 2 Kings 18.5 says, There was none like him among all the kings of Judah. After him nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. Even King Solomon, the greatest king, the most glorious king, the richest king, eventually turned from the Lord. King Hezekiah did not. Friends, this, this is the Old Testament coming alive. You could go and touch this. I mean, if you got past the museum guards. But you could... Practically touch the Old Testament. Reach in there and touch it. King Hezekiah probably touched this piece of clay right here. Miracles could function like this seal system. Miracles are unique. They're unusual. Easily recognizable. Impossible to duplicate. And something only God can do. All of these things apply to the seal of a king. Even skeptics who demand a sign from God show that miracles would prove to them God's existence. Through miracles, God could communicate in writing and show which messengers speak for him, which words are his message. So what is a miracle? What are we supposed to look for? Norman Geisler, in the book that is leading a large part of this great question series called I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. He says this about miracles. 
A miracle is something which would never have happened had nature, as it were, been left to its own devices. So we might say that natural law describes what happens regularly by natural causes. And miracles, if they occur at all, describe what happens rarely. Let's make that smaller. It's rare. What happens rarely by supernatural or outside of nature causes. An easier way to describe miracles is this, also from Geisler. A miracle is an act of God to confirm the word of God through a messenger of God. We see this in the Bible all over. 1 Kings 17.24, after a miracle from the prophet Elijah, a woman says, now I know that you, she probably was waving her fingers at Elijah too, now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true. The Pharisees often came to Jesus and demanded a sign and demanded a miracle to prove that what he was saying and what he was doing was from God. Okay, so we have a loose idea of what a miracle is. So let's answer the question. Are miracles possible? The better question is, does God work this way? Because in fact, miracles are not only possible, they are actual. The greatest miracle of all, creation itself, has already occurred. All of this out of nothing. And the second is like it. Creating life out of non-life. Creating self-aware life, nonetheless, out of non-life. When we think about the amazing, powerful, personal creator that made the universe happen in the first place, then the miracles of the Bible are easy to believe. And if you forgot just what I mean by made the universe happen in the first place, let me remind you. I've got a picture I want to show you. A conservative guess of the number of observable galaxies in our universe is 100 billion. 100 billion. So if you look at this picture with me, do you see all those stars? Except those are not stars. All of those are galaxies. Every single dot in this picture represents, not sure, let's say about a billion stars. Could be upwards of a trillion stars for the really big galaxies. Look at that. Those are not stars. Each dot is a billion stars within it. And each star has a system of planets that goes around it. And each planet probably has alien life on it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Just making sure you're listening. But look at that. Look at all those galaxies. Look how vast that is. It is mind-blowing to me when I try to comprehend just how big the universe is. It is soul-crushing to me to think about the creator who did this. Who is this God? Who is this God that I come to with my expectations? I'm like, here, meet my needs. Here, make me happy. Here, overlook my sin. Who is this God? This God who just simply let words slip out of his mouth. And with that much effort, a billion, billion worlds are created. With regard to the Bible, if Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, 
and the earth. If this is true, then every other miracle in the Bible is easy. Is easy peasy. Splitting the Red Sea. Bringing fire from heaven. Keeping a man safe in a fish for three days. Accurately predicting future events. Turning water into wine. Heal diseases instantaneously or raise the dead. Are any of these problems for our Creator? Not at all. So easy. If we are to truly understand what we are saying when we acknowledge that the universe had a beginning and that universe had a Creator, then miracles are undetachable from the idea. C.S. Lewis, a much smarter man than I, said, oh, go back to C.S. Lewis's quote. Did I not put it in there? Guess not. C.S. Lewis, let me just read it for you. If we admit God, then must we admit miracle? Indeed, indeed, you have no security against it. That is the bargain. You cannot have God without miracle. They are inseparable. But what about natural laws, Tyson? Aren't they immutable? Aren't they unbreakable? Well, the funny thing about natural laws is they're not real in the sense that we think they are. We think that scientists, through their study of the universe, like found some big, huge curtain and pulled it back, and there they are, the laws engraved in the marble wall. That's, that's just not what they are. Natural laws are descriptors Descriptors of what we observe, of how we interact with the world. And truthfully, the natural laws that we have defined have changed because our understanding of science has changed. Our understanding of the world has changed. And they're bound to change again because science has never been static, which is a great thing. So, are natural laws immutable? They're simply not, especially for the creator God that we worship. So what about miracles? What do they look like? How do we know what we're looking for? How do we know when we're looking at the king's seal? Well, miracles are unique. They're unusual. They're easily recognizable. They're very hard to duplicate and something that only the king can do. Miracles from God have to have specific traits and a specific criteria. And so we get that criteria, at least the three I'm going to share with you right now, from what we have already observed observed about God. First, an instantaneous beginning of a power act. That sounds funny. Let's put that in another word in another way. In other words, an act that cannot be explained naturally. Our infinite God has access to ability and power that no other created thing has. He has the supernatural. As we talked about before, he is outside of nature. He is outside of time and space and matter. His abilities transcend natural law as we understand them. The next criterion of miracles is intelligent design and purpose. God is a being who is purposeful, specific, and precise with his actions. His miracles are going to be the same way. They're going to have a reason. They're going to have a purpose. They're going to have a focus on him. 
Next, God's miracles will have the promotion of good and right behavior. God is our standard of good and right. He would not act contrary to himself and his miracles are going to do the same thing. They are not going to be contrary to his character. For example, a miracle has occurred if Jesus, a man who predicted he would rise from the dead, actually rose from the dead. Such an event would display instantaneous power beyond natural laws, intelligent design and purpose, and moral purpose by confirming Jesus was from the Father. All right, so let's look at this miracle. Let's look at the miracle of the resurrection. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I feel like we need an intermission. I'm going to drink some water. You guys talk about how well the sermon's going, okay? <sighs> There's a lot. All right, let's keep going. I drank my water. The resurrection of Jesus was the climax of Jesus' ministry on earth. The resurrection was his greatest miracle. However, there are plenty of skeptics, plenty of skeptics who don't believe, who have come up with theories as to why or how the resurrection did not occur. And we're going to look at a few of those. There are eight major theories. We're going to look at my favorite three. Um, But before we do that, I want to go through a list. It's a long list, so bear with me. Put your focus glasses on. Everybody do this. Put your glasses on. There we go. Focus glasses. Let's read through this list together, all right? Oh, let me, I'm sorry. This list is what scholars agree on. So we've got liberal scholars who don't believe Jesus and anything he says as for deity uh, and, and being God and Messiah. We have scholars who follow Christ as Savior. This list is a list of what they can agree on. All right? Let's look at that list. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. He was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his internment. I had to practice that word, internment. The disciples uh, had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their beliefs. The proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history, which means we didn't add it. We didn't bring in the resurrection to the story later on. The disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been crucified and buried shortly before, implying loads of witnesses everywhere, thousands of people, The gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Next. Next. We're going to go to the next one. Sunday was the primary day for the gathering and worshiping for the new believers, implying that something massive happened for them to change their their tradition that lasted for thousands of years to meet on Saturday. They changed to Sunday. 11. James, the brother of Jesus, and skeptic before his time, this time, was converted when he believed he also saw the risen Jesus. And the last one. Just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed as an appearance of the risen Jesus. So how can mainstream scholars, believers and non-believers, agree on all of these things? 
It's because, as Scott covered in the second sermon of this series, focusing on the reliability of, of Scripture, it's because the New Testament is unchanged from the original documents. Let's get that up there. There we go. The New Testament has the largest number of ancient manuscripts as well as manuscripts that come closer to the actual event in history than any other piece of ancient literature. So we know that without a a, a doubt, what we have right here is what the original said. Also, the next one, the New Testament is accurate and reliable. The New Testament is extremely detailed with 140 historically confirmed details supported by archaeology as well as other non-biblical ancient texts. Very reliable. And also, the New Testament writers were convinced themselves. Their lives were changed from this point on. And most of them gave their life as martyrs, proving their beliefs. So these three main points here support Everything, that long list we just went over together. So really, the only thing, the only thing that skeptics still have left to build their, their theories, their skepticism on, is deception. That is, the writers had to have been deceived. Yes, they were genuine. Yes, they were sincere in what they wrote, in what they thought, and what they felt. It had to be deception. They must have been deceived about Jesus and his miracles, about Jesus and his resurrection. So let's just look at a few of these theories of deception together. The first one is the hallucination theory. This theory says that those people who saw Jesus sincerely thought that they had seen the risen Christ, but instead were really experiencing hallucinations. We have some fatal flaws here. First of all, we know that people don't hallucinate in mass groups. Uh, Jesus appeared at one time to over 500 people. So to assume that all of those people were hallucinating at the exact same time, let alone sober old world Jews, like is very unrealistic. Also, Jesus appeared to people on 12 different recorded events. This theory also does not uh, explain how they saw Christ eat. They saw him drink. They saw him cook breakfast on the beach. Do you remember that story with Peter? Plus, there's the empty tomb that is also not explained. If it's a hallucination, where is Christ? Where is the body? Next theory, the wrong tomb theory. This one just simply says the witnesses went to the wrong tomb. This one is very easy to explain. Once the disciples came into the city and started proclaiming, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen, the only thing the Romans and the Jews had to do was to go and get the body and say, Nuh-uh, uh-uh, he's still dead. He's Okay, sorry. It, was, it would be very easy for them to squelch Christianity right there if this theory was the case. Also, the empty tomb did not fully convince the disciples. It was his appearance to the disciples that finally convinced them. Finally, swoon or apparent death theory. This one says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he was placed in the tomb alive. Therefore, sure, people saw him, 
But he never really died. He just got better or something. Well, first of all, the Romans were professional executioners. To assume that they couldn't do their job is is laughable. Second, to think that you could take a body that had been crucified, had gone through the crucifixion experience, who had a, 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 a spear, what, what, what was that? A spear, yeah. A spear stabbed through his lung, possibly into his heart, like what doctors think happened. To think that you could take a body that went through that, put it in the tomb, and it lasts there, and then move a two-ton rock, and then get by Roman guards is ridiculous. So no, not even this gives us something to consider, genuinely. Friends, if we had time, we could continue down this path. We could go theory to theory to theory. The book that I mentioned has eight of them. It goes through eight of them. And we could do the same thing. The Bible is the most reliable, the most supported, the most accurate document, ancient document, humans have. It can be trusted. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Oh, didn't get ready. Let me open it up here. The Apostle Paul tells us, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Just real quick, that phrase, accordance with the Scriptures. He means Old Testament prophecy. This was prophesied. And that he appeared to Cephas, the Apostle Peter, another name for him, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. In other words, there are 500 other people, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the Apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Friends, in summation, there's just a few points I want you to take away. I'll put them up here. Number one, miracles are possible because our God is infinitely powerful and he is personal. He wants to interact with us. Number two, the Old Testament and the New Testament are proven reliable and predict miracles. Number three, the Old, the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah would live, die, and rise again. Number four, the New Testament gives us the account of Jesus doing just that. Number five, no reasonable explanation can come up against it. And in fact, they are unreasonable. Friends, the case for miracles and the resurrection of Christ is very strong. But if you are still hesitant to fully believe, to fully give in, to believe in miracles, to believe in the resurrection of Christ, I have one more consideration for you. This is a a short piece from a sermon called One Solitary Life that I'd like to read to you. Okay? He was born in an obscure village the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. 
He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that we normally ascribe to greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, one of them denying him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property that he had on this earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have passed. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within my mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man like this one solitary life. Friends, if what I am saying this morning is true, if God allows miracles, if God sent his son to live, to die, to rise again, then it changes everything. It means everything. Let me pray for us, friends. God, thank you so much for being the God that you are. Thank you so much for wanting to interact with us, for being a personal God, for sending your Son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sin, and to rise from the grave. God, I pray that we would live with that truth in mind always, that we would live being reminded that you are our rock, that you are who we live for, that you offer us new life in you. Jesus, we thank you. We love you.